Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode I bring on a new guest to unpack some of the major themes and ideas in a piece of writing. Today we are looking at Depth Psychology and a New Ethic by Eric Neumann. Neumann was a philosopher, a depth psychologist, and a disciple of Carl Jung, and this piece was first published in 1949. Today, helping me unpack this essay was George Cabrales. This was part one of a two-part discussion. And in this first conversation, we really tried to lay a foundation to understanding some of Neumann's ideas by breaking apart a lot of these terms and ideas that he uses throughout the essay, including shadow, persona, depth psychology, the old ethic, suppression, repression, projection, and scapegoat psychology. I know that probably sounds like a mouthful, but we did our best to use a lot of examples to try to make these ideas as clear as possible. And along the way, we got into some really fascinating territory. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with George on depth psychology and a new ethic. Cool, man. All right. So we're doing uh, Depth Psychology in the New Ethic by Eric. Is it Newman or Neumann? I don't know. Um, I, I used to pronounce Newman all my life. And then I went to a workshop once and the guy there said Neumann. <laughs> so yeah. I, I guess, you, I don't know. If you're Christian, you call him Newman. If, if you're Jewish, <laughs> you call him Neumann. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I've always said Neumann, but I heard, uh, I think I heard Jordan Peterson in a lecture call him, call him Newman. And then you made the Seinfeld joke. You were like, oh yeah, Newman, like Seinfeld. So, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, it's kind of like the Jung or Jung debate, you know, there's some people who say Carl Jung, others say uh, Jung. Van Wick, Van White, Tomato, Tomato. <laughs> exactly. But anyways, so. So yeah, we're doing this book, this essay, and uh, this was one of his his first pieces I, I was reading. I guess it maybe wasn't the first that he wrote, but it was the first that was published. Yeah, yep. and um, I think so. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. He tries to he tries to tackle a pretty big uh, undertaking. You know, it's it's interesting with just a lot of writers. It's like their first piece is kind of the their opportunity to just like you know get it all out. <laughs> it's, it, so it's a pretty ambitious piece. You know, you try to kind of set up uh, a new ethic and kind of critique the old ethic, which we'll kind of get into uh, what that is and what that looks like. But yeah, he deals with the problem of evil. He gets into projection and scapegoat psychology, which we'll get into all that good stuff. Um, but maybe before we jump into it, uh, you know, this book's called Depth Psychology in the New Ethic. And maybe we can maybe just start with depth psychology. So what is your, and it's kind of a broad question, but what is your, what is kind of your like working definition of depth psychology and what that is? Like if, if well, somebody had never heard of depth psychology, like what is, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, well, depth psychology, um, it's, it's, um, it's another term for psychodynamic. Depth psychology is um, that area of psychology that entertains the proposition that, that there's an unconscious, mm. um, and it's and, and, and it's primary. Uh, it's 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 um it's, it precedes consciousness. 
Um, and it's a term that was coined by um, uh, Carl Jung's um, supervisor um, in Zurich at, at the Bergolzu uh, Clinic, um, Eugene Bleuler, B-L-E-U-L-E-R. You, you, you got to, I apologize, I mispronounced some, all these German names. <laughs> yeah. um, but Eugene Bleuler was um, Carl Jung's supervisor. And when um, Jung was developing, you know, his stuff, um, Eugene, in order to um, contrast his, you know, students' new work from Freud's, because Freud was the man, mm-hmm. um, he, he said, let's call this depth psychology. Um, mm-hmm. Subsequently, it was called um, analytical psychology um, um, by Jung's followers. But, um, um, but it was, again, it was, it was Blulia's term. He coined a lot of terms like schizophrenia and other terms. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting um, um, history. Um, anyway, depth psychology was coined by, by Bueller, and, um, and um, it, 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 um, it proposes that the psyche um, is, um, is predominantly unconscious. It, it accepts the mm. proposition that the unconscious, particularly the deeper layers, the collective unconscious, Mm. Yeah. So yeah. On to your question. Yeah. yeah. No, that's interesting. And I mean, yeah, a lot of what uh, Neumann or Newman gets into is uh, talking about how now that we, uh, you know, here in the 20th century when this was written, like now that we uh, know about and accept that there is an unconscious, this makes us kind of have to rethink ethics in general. So it it is kind of. Um, yeah, a pivotal part of this piece as well Yep, is understanding yep. that we have this thing called the unconscious and it is governing a lot of our behavior or maybe even most of our behavior. Yep, yep. The, the new ethic implies a relationship with the unconscious. Mm. You know, the old ethic um, employs, as it says later on, I, we're going to get into it, employs certain strategies like um, suppression and repression. And one of the things that it represses and has suppressed as well is the unconscious. It doesn't, it doesn't recognize it. It, it. it doesn't have a relationship with it. It, it only focuses on um, what's called um, mater- what we call now uh, materialism. Mm. You know, back then they used to use the word, they used the word um, uh, physicalism. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, cool. Well, maybe let's, cause he, he kind of divides this essay up into a few different sections. And after the introduction, the first, uh, you know, kind of real section is called the old ethic. So maybe we can start there and kind of break down what Neumann thinks the old ethic is, meaning the way that societies have kind of created ethics up until this point. Sure, you can start with the old ethic is um the oh chapter, yeah the chapter one on introduction sure yeah um, I mean th- that first sentence I think it's key um, I don't know what copy you have on page twenty five mm-hmm. uh, you know th- that that first sentence I think I think it's key um the problem of evil is one of the most central problems of modern man um, yeah you know, sentence I mean it's a simple sentence and then um, that second paragraph I think it's also critical. The modern age is an epoch in human history in which science and technology are demonstrating beyond doubt the capacity of the conscious mind to deal with physical nature and to master it to a very large extent. Mm. That's an important statement regarding the old ethic. 
Um, so again, it's like that. It's, um, you, you can infer that it's dismissing the unconscious right there. Um, mm. at, at any rate, to a greater degree than in any uh, any earlier period in human history. But it is also an epilogue in which man's incapacity, incapacity, is incapable to deal with psychic nature. So um, again, he, uh, this other aspect of psyche, which is the unconscious, it, it, and um. Another error, you asked me earlier on regarding depth psychology. Depth psychology mm-hmm. sometimes is also um, known as spiritual psychology. Um, the unconscious, in order for one to have a spiritual experience, one needs to encounter the, the, the unconscious, particularly the deeper layers, the archetypal layers, mm. according to um, analytical psychology. And here he says, in which man's incapacity to deal with psychic nature. So man can only deal with materialistic nature, conscious nature, not with psychic nature. Mm. You know, he denies that. I hope that makes some sort of sense. With the human soul, or the next clause says it, with the human soul has become more appallingly, uh, appallingly obvious than ever before. So, so there's a maintenance of a split between um, men's um, psychic nature, which is both conscious and unconscious. So... I, the, the reason I, 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 I read that because I think that's that's an important idea to grapple with or to chew on before we get into the, the dual ethic. Um, mm. So, you know, it's, it's like I think Neumann in this introduction is laying out a map. Um, and that's what I like about Neumann. He's developing his argument, but simultaneously he's sustaining Jungian thought. Mm. You know, because he—that's his foundation—is Jungian, you know, is some um, analytical psychology. Um, I, I hope that makes some sort of sense. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, this, yeah, this, uh, this uh, introduction. I think it is important, and uh, yeah, I wasn't trying to skip over it. I think, I think, uh, you know, this this piece is written kind of in the wake of World War II. So some of what he's saying in this introduction too is just like we've seen humans' capacity for for evil. Yep. And, you know, we can't really ignore that anymore. And, you know, and then he kind of goes on to say, which is a lot of the thesis of this piece, that a lot of that evil comes from, um, you know, our inability to, you know, it comes from the, the fact that we repress all of these elements of ourselves. And then it, you know, comes out in different ways like projection. And we'll, we'll get into all of that as well later. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, we don't have to go there. We'll go straight to chapter two. <laughs> no, 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 this, no, it's great. It's great. I, I was just thinking it might be hard to get into uh, talking about that until we've kind of have a foundation of uh, okay. like Order. what what the what the old ethic is and and kind of how he thinks about you know kind of what has happened. Okay. Um, and, and as far as the old ethic goes. You know, he says a lot of it has, a lot of it has its roots in the kind of Judeo-Christian tradition and the Greek tradition. Yep. And it's what happens. He says is there's this kind of split where we tend to separate good and evil and darkness and light into two things. And maybe the extreme version of this would be like, you know, God and the devil, with with you know God being perfection and the ideal and light and the devil being darkness and you know so the old ethic i think from what i gathered what the old ethic tries to do is is divide these two things 
and say, this is good, this is bad, and we should strive for the good, and we should try to, uh, we should try to get rid of the bad or push the bad away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that is that kind of how you 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 read the what what he's trying to say with the old ethic as well? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think um, it, it, I don't remember where, but explicitly he states he states that the the, the old ethic is dualistic. Mm. Uh, it's I, I think it's in that. I wrote it down somewhere. Um, oh, here it goes. Uh, it's on page 44. Um, the old ethic is dualistic. It's towards the bottom, the bottom paragraph. But but you kind of could infer that a, 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 as you're reading the material. So, um, um, yeah, the, the old ethic is dualistic. So, like you said, uh, and what he says, it's, it's he divides the pure with the impure, it divides light and you know um, light and dark, um, and again, the, you know, you start getting these irating ideas, mm. you know, the, the, these uh, Zoroastrian ideas, which ultimately begins to influence um, the Near East, where Christianity emerges and where the Hellenistic culture, you know, um, you know, it comes together. So, um, um, so there is this and that. Not is there is there there's this or that, you know, good or evil. And then there's a tendency um, in that dualistic approach to deny that which is perceived by the collective as negative. Mm. And he does make a, a point that that's oh, that's that's never um, that's not categorical because in, in, in um, what's positive in one group may be negative may be negative in another group. But the point still is, is that it's dualistic, and no matter what the collective is. You have the you have the collective values, and you have what's called what he calls the anti-collective um, values or the anti-values. And those anti-values, whatever whatever those particular arbitrary details facts are, they are denied. So there's a dualistic that which you accept and that which you don't accept. And that which you don't accept is what Jung and Norman calls the shadow. You know what's called darkness. Um, right. Well, and, and that's a good point too to bring up that you know, good, what we call good and evil is not, at least in Neumann's view, it's not this objective thing. It's kind of subjective depending on what the collective or what the society deems as being good and evil. So, you know, uh, in, you know, in one time or one period in history, you know, something like courage might be considered, uh, you know, a good and, uh, cowardice would be considered an evil. Um, you know, maybe that's not a good example because I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of a, maybe a culture where that's it's it's that's courage is not considered a good. But no, but but the, but 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 you, but you illustrate the point. You, you yeah. make the point. Maybe um, you may not want to say courage, but we can. You can develop that argument. Or maybe you want to talk about marriage. Maybe um, yeah. in one culture you can only marry one person, and then the implication is you know what is fidelity. In another culture, you're allowed to marry more than one person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, um, you know, in one culture, um, you're allowed to eat pork and in another culture, you're not allowed to eat pork. You know, th- th- there's an anti-value that what he calls a prohibition. And like you said, uh, um, one of the key contingency is time and place. He, he repeats that over and over again. It's always contingent like in terms of context, time and place, you know, what's considered value in this place and time or this epoch 
may not be maybe may be considered an anti-value in another place in another epoch. So it it, it, right. it a lot depends on contingencies. Um, you know, yeah. in one group tall people of value, and another group short people of value. You right. know, um, so it's it, it's wonderful, and you know, it makes me it makes you think of these narratives, these human these stories of of of, 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 of Gulliver's travels and stuff mm. like that. How values change, because a lot what what, what Norman talks about. Um, and what Young talks about are illustrated in in in, in stories. You know, in, in um, uh, what's that story about Dorothy, the, the Wizard of Oz? You know how values change uh, from one context to another context. Um, so yeah, what you're saying is true. Time and place is very important with regards to what is collectively a value. Yeah, well, and I think it's important to bring that up early because uh, when he uses something like the word evil. He's using evil in the context of it is evil within that society or within that collective. Yep. So, and you know, we'll kind of probably get into that later where he says people like uh, Jesus or Socrates or Martin Luther, you know, they were kind of considered in a sense doing some evil things because what they were, what they were doing and what they were thinking was not, what was accepted in the society at the time. They were kind of, you know, he groundbreakers. Calls, yeah, he calls them um, revolutionary, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the term he uses. You know, he also uses the word um, um, radical. Mm. You got to be a radical thinker. You got to be a revolutionary thinker. Um, the risk with that in, in a, um, all in, within the old ethics is that you're perceived as what? You're perceived as evil. If you're mm-hmm. a radical or if you're revolutionary, within the old ethics, within the dualistic old ethic, you run the risk of being perceived by the, by the group, by the collective mentality as evil, as a renegade. Absolutely. Therefore, you'll be crucified like a Jesus. Absolutely. So you're, you're absolutely right. Well, I, I agree with you. That's what Norman was trying to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so yeah, so he says, you know, we've, we've had this old ethic and some of the ways that some of the ways that the the ethic is able to function is you know we kind of cultivate it by doing a few different things and he talks a little bit about like suppression and repression yep which i i'm i've got to admit i think in the past i've been guilty of kind of conflating those terms but he he does a good job here of kind of like distinguishing the two so he says suppression is a conscious act this is where you are consciously deciding to uh, maybe suppress something like an urge that you feel. Uh, so maybe in this, this instance, we use like courage as the example. So uh, maybe your, your urge is to, to run away and cower away and you suppress that urge and you, you know, stay on the battle line and you fight. So that maybe would be an example of suppression where it's just like it's, it's a conscious act you know, the value in the culture, maybe say this culture, the value is to be courageous and to fight and be a warrior. So I'm going to maybe suppress this kind of cowardly urge inside of me. And I'm going to, uh, you know, fight with my brethren on the battlefield or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't like, I mean, there's certainly a distinction between suppression and repression. Um, but I remember, you know, I, I, I reread it today. One of the reasons I reread it because, you know, you, you gave me a list of terms and those were two, two terms. And I don't like how Neumann describes it, suppression. 
you know, um, or maybe it's because I don't understand the way he's describing okay. it. Um, so that could be it. But I, but but you said it. Um, one of the contrasts, there's a significant contrast between suppression and repression is that suppression, you are conscious of what you are deceiving yourself of, what, what you're denying. Mm. Yeah. You're intentionally deceiving yourself for whatever the motives may be, but, but, but you're conscious of it. So uh, a parents may suppress information from their children. Mm. So maybe, you know, um, th- th- there were these, th- there were these skeletons in the closet. So a family will not talk about those skeletons um, like a grandfather who is not courageous. So they don't talk <laughs> about his lack of courage uh, but they do talk about other other characteristics of him. Mm. So there is this intent. But um, as as George and as Zachary, as grandkids of you know of this family, um, we experience a sense of hypocrisy. Right? There's something going on. We can't put our mm. finger on it. We feel this anxiety. We cannot, because of the power that our parents and grandparents have over us, we cannot call them liars. But we feel the um what, what other people call the double bind you know the, the, this double messages this is hypocrisy we know there's a deception going on that is suppression you know when there's an intentional a conscious attempt to deceive others mm. no matter what what the particulars are courage you know or, yeah. or, or, or other stuff as opposed to repression repression is totally a um, you're unconscious of it it's it's right. it's it's, 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 there's denial to the extreme, you know, um, there is no recognition. There is no intent of deception. Um, it's ju- you just, you consciously have, I think he calls it that there's a forgetfulness. I forget what he calls it. There's mm-hmm. some sort of, um, you, you forget about it. Um, particularly after yeah. generations, right? It's just forgotten about. It's completely unconscious. So one, so the suppression has to do with, with an element of consciousness is done intentionally. Mm-hmm. So see, Repression is done unintentionally, but I, I think the, the very important point, and he, he later on makes it, he's, he says they're both dangerous, but the really dangerous one, and that's when he gets into scapegoat um, psychology, yeah. the really dangerous one is repression. Right. Because it's through repression, we begin to um, employ projection. Right. Yeah. Right. Projection is, 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 is projection of unconscious content, and unconscious content is repressed content not suppress content. Right. Absolutely. And, and I thought it was interesting reading about, you know, kind of what how Neumann defined repression. Like it holds up a lot with uh, kind of what we know about cognitive biases now. And there's something called like the self-serving bias, which one of the kind of aspects of the self-serving bias is that we tend to remember uh, memories from our past that, we where we look good or like that kind of paint us in a, a good light and we tend to forget things from our past where we tend to kind of not look so good so this could be something where it's like you know i'm just kind of reflecting on like am i a courageous person and the things that come to mind were the times that i acted courageously and i kind of conveniently forget all the times where i act uh, like a coward and again, it's happening at the unconscious level. So it's not like I'm consciously deciding to remember these things or not. It's just, you know, they're just not available. I've kind of repressed that 
that's that. pretty cool what you just did yeah it's it's cool what when you I, I think what you just did i don't know if you did it intentionally but um for me it looks like you did it you 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 got comparative you start using depth depth psychology with other with other psychologists in this case social um of social psych i mean yeah. these terms cognitive dissonance um self-serving bias these are terms that are employed in social psych you know right. they, they they're all pointing to the same same phenomenon you totally. know um that um how we how we deceive ourselves when we interact mm-hmm. with other subjects in a group you know so for example um i have 20 i have 20 girlfriends and i only tell you about the ones i've been successful with i don't tell you <laughs> the ones that i've been unsuccessful with you know um and and so you have a perception of me that's inaccurate um, that's somewhat you know um, deceitful um, and um, I w- according to depth psychologist I'm going to experience a measure of neurosis mm. because of my suppression um, now you either agree with that or you don't a lot depends on ego inflation we'll get into that later um, but um, usually m- most of us experience a measure of neurosis depending how much of how we participate in the suppression and repression of psychic material yeah in this case truth you know the truth in this case in particular the truth that we are the source of evil mm, totally so and how I, do you admit that yeah so yeah i think we should definitely get into some of the uh negative effects of these of the suppression repression but maybe okay. just one more thing before we move on i think one of the things he brought up Uh, And this actually might have been in one of the other authors kind of intros to the book or forwards to the book was the reason that we repress things is because it is kind of damaging to our ego or it's damaging to our self-esteem and that like, you know, our self image, if we, if we maybe saw ourselves as we truly are in our, in all the complexity of it. Um, and maybe saw ourselves as, okay, I actually am a bit of a coward or I actually am pretty selfish or I actually am pretty envious. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a blow to the ego. That's kind of damaging to our self image, uh, damaging to our self esteem. So I think that's one of the reasons that we, that we tend to, uh, repress. And that's another thing. So talking about cognitive biases and social psychology, um, I think it's the optimism bias. It, it something there's something actually. I think it's from um, this book, "Stumbling on Happiness." I, the author's name is is blanking at the moment, but he talks about how basically, if we saw ourselves exactly the way we are, like if our picture of ourselves was exactly accurate, he's like, it's pretty. It's it's likely that we would be depressed, and. On the other hand, if we just completely had an inflated image of ourselves, like that was out of control, it would be dangerous. You know, we would start thinking like, oh, you know, I can, uh, I can, I can beat up that guy and, you know, get our ass kicked or whatever. So he says maybe like evolutionarily, it worked out so that we have a little bit, uh, of a delusion when it comes to how, how good we are at certain things or how virtuous we are, but it's not to the point where it's uh, out of control. 
I mean, there, there, there are different levels. I'll, I'll give you an example for an innocuous, you know, a harmless example. Mm. Let's say I, I, I'm your psychology professor and you fail all five exams I gave you. Well, yeah. my perception is that you suck. You don't know how to study, Zach. Yeah. You know what I mean? You got to be, a, you, you need to read the book much more. Another plausible explanation can mean I suck. I don't know how to teach the material. Mm. I'm going to prefer the former description. <laughs> You're the idiot, not me, right? So, yeah. you know, that's self-serving. You know, that is a form of, now, I'll leave it up to you to decide if that's suppression or repression. Um, you can argue both. Um, um, so, you know, what is it? Which characteristic of myself and my self-serving, you know? And that ultimately leads to a cognitive dissonance. Because even though I tell you, you suck, and I, I'm the great teacher, but you're, you, you know, you're a mediocre student, I'm going to experience, at some level, a neurosis. Mm. And now I, I need to express that. I, I need to vent that neurosis. Well, one of the ways for me to vent that neurosis is I go home and kick my dog. Mm. You know, um, I can't kick you. I can only call you. A, 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 a below par student, you know, and give you a C, not, you know, um, not, not the potential A that, that you have within you because I cannot accept the mediocrity within myself. So I project it onto you in some form and I displace it somewhere else. Um, in, in any case, they're both dangerous, aren't they? Yeah. You know, the, the dangerous, uh, I hope that, 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 um, that illustrates the point. Uh, we all participate in this, in this kind of stuff, in this type of deception, you know, but it gets quite dangerous when we get, well, what he called later on, when we get into the scapegoat of mm. psychology. And that's when um, um, we start seeing a lot of victims, you know, but that happens at a collective level, right? Um, right now, I was just giving you an example of what happens at an interpersonal level between right. you and I, you know, Um it can get worse, right? Particularly if I start making policy and saying that students who who only perform at the C level, we got to put them in concentration camps. Mm. You know, well, it, I, gets, it gets quite nefarious at that point. Yeah, and that's a good point too. That like a lot of what Neumann's talking about, it works at an individual level and it works at a collective level as well. Yeah. So yep. these things like suppression and repression. You know, we've kind of been talking about them on the individual level, but, uh, you know, the collective can repress certain things as well when the collective can suppress certain things as well. Um, well, cool. So we've been kind of hinting around like scapegoat psychology um, and maybe we can get into maybe we can kind of get into what that is and how he thinks about it. Um, so we were kind of talking about suppression and repression as the way that society uh, or, you know, individuals in a society try to meet this, uh, you know, ideal or perfection that they're striving towards. And he says what tends to happen with repression is the individual splits, they split into two different kind of, uh, their psyche, they kind of split into two different sides you have the persona and the shadow and the persona is the at my understanding the persona is 
what is accepted by society, what is, um, it's kind of the, the individual's, the part of the individual that uh, is able, allows them to interface with society and contains all of the quote-unquote good elements, the, the things that uh, society would, you know, the, the courageous aspect of the personality and the virtuous aspect of the personality. And then the shadow tends to be the, the opposite of that. So this is either the darker sides of the personality or just the sides of the personality that uh, would not be looked at favorably by the collective. Uh, so maybe the cowardice aspect of the person, the selfish aspect of the person. Um, and well, it's, it's correct. Yeah. The cowardice aspect of the person as, as it's perceived by the collective, mm. but the person can be quite heroic, but it's perceived by the collective values as, as being a coward. So, um, yeah, uh, the persona embodies the collective values. Mm. And textual, you know, it's, it's, it's time and place, and the shadow are the what, what, what he calls the anti-values, that which mm. is not accepted. So within a context, it's perceived as anti-values. You know, it, it's those aspects that the, the society, the collective values, do not want to accept. They prefer to forget vis-a-vis suppression and repression. So there's a maintenance. So suppression and repression maintains the old ethic, mm. which is really interesting stuff. Um, and it sounds simple, but I don't know for you, but as I read this material, I just have to sit down with my espresso and think, you know, the, the, the implications of this are scary because I, I find the, the, the um, depth, this depth psychology new ethic not only descriptive of what Neumann's experiencing, but I find it highly descriptive of what's going on today. Yeah. In in, in my own family, in my own neighborhood, in Brooklyn, you know, in Queens, you know, in this country, in this world, I find that we are starving. We need a new ethic. Mm. The new ethic seems like it's ready I don't know about you, but I feel like it's ready to, to it's ready to 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 percolate. Um, but for some reason, we still have this lingering attachment to the dual ethic. You know, well, what are the implications? Well, that we're still regressing, we're still repressing, we're still suppressing, we're still we're still participating in this what he calls infantile um, strategies. I think he calls them that, right? These infantile. He talks about later on. He mentions it here later on in another book. He develops it, but this evolution of consciousness that we're mm-hmm. still infantile, we're still immature, we're unable. Like you said, there's a disassociation between persona and shadow, and we're unable. We're not mature enough to embrace our shadow. We're not mature enough to embrace the anti-values that the that the shadow embodies, that the that, right. that the shadow stores. Excuse me, right? the shadow stores the persona embodies. So um, um, I hope that makes some sort of sense. Uh, well, so yeah, the, and the disassociation between these psychic structures, persona at the collective level and at the individual level, and shadow at the collective level and at the individual level. They're, mm-hmm. they, they, they're, they're split. 
you know, and there's an investment on what he calls a facade personality. I think he calls it that. Yep. He calls it a yeah. facade personality, which is basically the persona, the mask that we wear, the mask that society wears. You know, mm-hmm. Georgia, you a good person? Of course I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. Yeah. Well, what the fuck does that mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, meanwhile, I, I, I'm embezzling, right? You know, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm doing this and that, and, 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 and no one knows, you know what I mean? And I don't even know. Right. You know? Right. Well, yeah. So, so he says like, as far as, uh, as far as kind of persona and shadow go, the, if, if the, if the individual is not, uh, if their consciousness is not developed, then they tend to identify with the persona. The ego tends to identify with the persona and they tend to push the shadow underground and it remains unconscious. So in the, the case that you just gave, maybe the individual would be, you know, you know, if somebody asks them, are you a good person? Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a great person. I'm a Christian. I volunteer. And they, they just see themselves. They only identify with the aspects of themselves that are in alignment with what the collective values. And they just kind of, uh, leave unconscious and forget about, all of those other aspects of like, oh yeah, he's all, he's, but he also uh, embezzles money and I don't know is having an affair right now and like those those other kind of darker shadow material uh, is not is not coming to the forefront in oh, terms yeah. of the the self image because again maybe it's too uh, too painful to view yourself the way that you actually are in your totality. So instead, you the ego identifies with the persona and pushes the shadow underground. Yep, that's it. Yeah. And but, but the crazy yeah. thing here, if I may, and now yeah. this is something that I'm extrapolating from this material, and part of me, it sounds like I'm going, you know, um, you know, what's the expression? Now, I'm I'm in I'm in left field somewhere. Okay. But um um. Because, you know, we, we, we say embezzlement, right? Like it's a bad word, right? But mm. it's plausible that embezzlement can be a collective value in another context. Right. You know what I mean? And generosity is considered an anti-value in another context. Right. So that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, where the there is a bit of... Uh there's a bit of like moral relativism going on. Exactly. Where it's, where it's the shadow just... It, it Again, it doesn't mean that thing is objectively evil in all circumstances but it is uh it is taboo or frown upon in that society so yeah it's that's scary really- shit a lot of this stuff you know you, you kind of dig into these you know you swim into these waters and you find out that uh, some of the implications here are quite scary with regards to humanity um mm-hmm. we can be you know we are dr jack and mr high simultaneously can you live the can you can you live can you accept that and can you live your life with, with that acknowledgement that you can be Mr. Hyde at any moment under certain conditions? Most people will say what? No, I'm not. I am Dr. Hyde. I'm not. I'm Dr. Jekyll. I'm not Mr. Hyde. You know, can you admit that? Um, and I, I think that's one, of the, that's, that's one of the, I mean, what does he say here? We just read it earlier. I mean, oh, well, in the forward, he says, we are all born with much the same human nature. It's a simple yeah. sentence, right? Yeah. Well, unpack that. 
we are all born with that means we're all good and we're all what evil you know, no, he says, that, yeah, we have the capacity for all of these different things. Every human in, is born with the capacity to be courageous, to be, um, you know, compassionate, all of these things. But we also have the capacity to be envious and petty. And, uh, and I guess, really, and I guess yeah. this, will, this will go into what I guess next time when we talk about the new ethic, what are the implications of the new ethic? I think it can be quite scary stuff. You know, so, the, so the old ethics... Like like you said, it it, it it splits the persona with from the shadow. Mm. It disassociates them and it has this preference towards persona, and 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 and, and, it, and, and, it, and it constructs um, this this what he calls this this idea of perfection. Yeah, uh, you know um, that that only the characteristics that the collective asserts. Um, should be preferred what's called collective what he calls collective values one needs to live by one need, and then he, and and that the that the old ethics um one of the ways it maintains it is by what he calls discipline in other words you know um it, it's populated with 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 uh oughts and i think he used the word oughts or mm-hmm. uh, it, it, i was brought up you know, thou shall not and thou shall do this. You know, shall and shall not. Mm-hmm. You know, you shall be generous. You shall not murder, you, you know, your parents. It's, like rule, it's rule-based, yeah. Rule-based. It's, it's highly dogmatic. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know. I find that to be quite descriptive. Right, right. Well, and that's kind of, uh, yeah, like what we were saying earlier with how it is, uh, you know, dualistic or it's it's kind of works in dichotomies. Um the other thing you said, which I thought was really, really important to bring up, is that one of the kind of ground level truths that uh, Neumann kind of asserts is that humans, you know, people people have been arguing, you know, are humans born good and or humans born bad? Like he, I, I think his, the way he thinks about it, and probably Jung too, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think the way they think about it is we are both. We are all of these things. Like the, the totality of us is just immense and we contain multitudes, you know, we contain, yes, we are nice people, but we're also shitty people and we're also petty and we're also selfish and we're also compassionate and loving. And, you know, so I, I think that's a good foundation to have reading all reading all this is to know that you know i think that's how he thinks every human you know what's the line from like Scholz nitzen that the the line between good and evil runs through the heart of each individual so you know i think that's important also as why he says kind of the old ethic doesn't really work because we're not gods we're not perfect you know we have aspects of ourselves that are ugly and that when we strive for perfection, what happens is those things don't just go away. They go underground and, you know, they get repressed and, you know, and then all this kind of weird stuff starts to boil up, uh, yeah. which maybe we can start to talk about uh, projection and, and scapegoat psycho- psychology. Yeah. As well. any state, I mean, perfect. Everything you said, I would agree with it. And I do also, I want to underscore that saying everything you said, is Jungian, very mm. Jungian. Again, um, I just use Jungian as a general term because these are old ideas. 
you know, yeah. th- 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 this predates Young. You know, he just was able to articulate it. And Neumann um, gives credit to Young. Um, in, in, in this essay, if you look at the footnotes, he makes a lot of references to, um, to a particular um, essay found in Volume 7. Oh, it's, mm. it's from Volume 7, it's called Two Essays on Analytical Psychology. And he particularly places emphasis on the relationship between the ego and the self. Um, it's where Jung makes a lot of his, he, he postulates a lot of his psychic structures. He postulates them in Volume 5. Um, but he develops it much more in volume seven. And Neumann makes references to this. I don't know if you look at the, the footnotes. And um um because if when you if you read Neumann, you you it's it's it, 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 it Jungian thought permeates through this, mm-hmm. you know. Um and, and and what I like about Neumann, well good writers, um he 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 footnotes, his footnotes his master, his teacher. Yeah. You know? Um so much of these these ideas that Neumann is, is uh, asserting have been postulated by Carl Jung, mm. you know. Um, so, and and a lot of what you said is Jungian. So, right. I, I, I just want to underscore that. Yeah, you know? no, no, that's important here. Yeah, a lot of these terms like shadow and pers- persona, the yeah. psychic potential of of, of 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 being the psychic potential of Zachness of Georgeness. Is, is, is pregnant with all, with all possibilities. Mm. You know, you could be a good person and a bad, a bad person. And you, you know, um, it, 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 a lot depends on on um, circumstances and ultimately your will. Mm-hmm. How will you choose? Once you're aware that you're a saint and a sinner at the same time, how will you choose to live your life? Mm. You know, um, through your thoughts, through your feelings, through your actions, how would you live your life? And that, and again, that becomes an implication of, of the new ethic. Because in the old ethics, there is no will. He, he talks about um, conscience. Mm-hmm. You know, that the old ethics employs conscience. So if I am a good person, given the collect, a particular co- collective value, I, I, I go to church on Sunday. I give 5% of my salary, you know, yeah. to, um, to, to these, these, you know, the, uh, Choose two of the five, you know, and, and and if I do all that stuff, and if I wear this type of clothing, if I wear this color tie on a certain day of the week, then I'm perceived by the collective as what? As a good person. And then the building's problem is being a conscientious person. Mm. You know, but I'm what's what's perceived as as important a conscience, you know, as also kind of conflated with the idea of, of having a a, 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 a morality. Mm really implies that I'm following the collective algorithms. I'm not listening to what he later called the inner voice. I'm not listening to my intuition. You know, how can I condone war? But I do, right? By right. subscribing, you know, to, to, to the enlistment, you know. Um, I, I hope that makes some sort of sense. But remember, you know, when this country um, was... Um, um, the, the draft was instituted, right? And a lot of people mm-hmm. said, no, you know, these conscientious, uh, you know, they said, no, I'm not going, you know, they went to Canada. Well, they, they were scapegoated, right? They were considered as what? They were considered cowards, right? Mm. Yeah. And now, yeah. given another time, and there's another epoch, we realize that their voice, they were listening to their inner voice. They weren't following the collective conscience. I, right. I, I hope I, I'm trying to, uh, um, 
I'm also trying to develop this idea that 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 that, that, that the women develops that um, the persona is maintained at a collective level to what we call what we refer to as conscience. The conscience yeah. represents these collective values, you know. And and if you have a conscience, right? I mean, you, you, you just think about when you go to your family for Thanksgiving. You know, mm-hmm. anybody with a conscience is a good person, right? We all agree with that, right? You know, we think it's, it's you know it's, it's it's simple. Yes, George has a conscience, but psychologically, what are they scaffolding? They're scaffolding mm-hmm. the collective values. But if I'm against the collective values, then I don't have a good conscience. Well, and and I think yeah, I think it's good to bring that up as well because I had never heard. The, I've heard the I've heard the term conscience before. You know, you even hear it in like Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket says like, "Listen to your conscience, right? Let your conscience be your guide." But the way Neumann defines conscience is, it's not because Neumann uses two terms. He uses the term conscience and he uses the term inner voice. Yeah, and conscience he thinks about as being the the collective values. And inner voice, he he sees as being the kind of inner voice in the individual's head, which tells them to kind of rebel against the collective values. So, you know, in a sense, when um, I don't know what's a what's what's an example, I you know when uh, uh, you know when when Martin Luther decided to to you know nail the the documents to the wall he he was going against his conscience right because the conscience of the society was was telling him to do one thing but his inner voice uh was telling him to do something else so it is a bit of a distinction because i had always thought of the conscience as being an inner voice as the inner voice but I, i think it is good to to draw the distinction there that at least the way that Neumann thinks about it, they're two separate things that well, are kind of. That's uh, why I think people yeah. like Young and Neumann are, are, are so incisive because they address the, the, the subtlety, you know, uh, how mm-hmm. we are manipulated. Um, yes, I, I always thought for a long time, um, you know, I, I, I would use them interchangeable. You know, yeah. if I'm listening to my conscience, I'm listening to my inner voice. But in many ways, it, it's, 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 it's a trick. By the collective, right? Now, which what Jung calls mass men, um, you know, by mom mentality, he talks about it in the undiscovered self, valid men. Um, you know, what you know, and Norman differentiates these subtleties. What right. the group says, Oh, you're a conscientious person, Zach. What they what, what, what they're trying to trick you that if you come to work on time, you punch it in at eight and you punch and you punch out a five. You're a very conscientious person, but if you're consistently party, and doesn't matter what the what the character uh, the, the the rationale is, perhaps you have to bring your daughter to school, right, and then drop off right. your wife. That's why you're coming to work late. But they're not interested in that. If you come to work consistently party and 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 call sick too many times, you're considered what someone who's who's not a conscientious person, someone who doesn't care about the group's norms you know you run that risk you run that risk of being perceived that way it may not be accurate but that's how you be perceived now i'm just giving you again a harmless example they could it, it can be quite um uh, um 
Uh, and, you know, I can give you much more um, daunting examples. Um, so, you know, showing up to work without clothes, you know, perhaps my inner voice told me, don't wear clothes, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and that becomes, right, that, that could be quite, you, you know, at one time when I was growing up, if you went to the beach without clothes, you were a criminal, yeah. you know, um, unless you were in a particular location. Um, but anyway, um, or if you demonstrated certain proclivities towards sexual orientations, mm. you know what I mean? Um, so you know, I you know, I, I could build up, I could build up those arguments. So um, he just differentiates what you and I always thought as your inner voice, as conscience. He mm. says that no, the inner voice is this, and conscience is that. And I'm not saying he's right, but what I am saying, he is critical. And it, for me, it resonates. It resonates. It's how tricky, how the groups we affiliate ourselves, how they perpetuate their existence and and um, manipulate engineer our thoughts feelings and behavior through this idea of conscience because mm. we all want to be perceived as someone of conscience so implicitly we need to subscribe to the collective values isn't that fucking weird you know me i mean you know if, if you're in a certain domain, you got to use their vocabulary, right? What happens if you don't? I mean, when I'm with my friends who love baseball, I need to use baseball jargon. If I don't, I'm considered an outcast. Mm. You follow what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's I have to employ their sense of collective values. In this case, using this lexicon, using this jargon. And if I step out of it, I am considered radical. You know, I cannot get too poetic. Right. Well, and I think it's, yeah, it, it's, you know, just by him kind of differentiating those two, those things into two different categories, you know, the conscience and the, uh, the inner voice, you could even think about, you know, an example where somebody's conscience is telling them one thing and their inner voice is telling them something else. Like you use the example of, uh, you know, I, I got to leave work to drive my daughter to school. You could hear that person's self-talk as being something like, you know, you should, you know, you should stay at your job and, you know, be a good citizen. Like that's maybe the conscience. And then there's the inner voice that's saying like, yeah, but this is my daughter. This is more important than what the collective thinks. So you kind of have that, like, that would be the inner battle essentially would be between the conscience and the inner voice. And I yeah, think and that's he, the kind of inner battle that he saw as being. Yeah. Um, and, and, he, and, he, and, and he gets, I mean, it helps you begin to understand certain other phenomena. Like, for example, you know, when in your, in your life, you know, when, or, or no, you're 50 something now and, and you're not going to your, to your daughter's gymnastic match. You know what I mean? Um, do, because you have to do, you have to do, um, um, you have to work overtime. Right. I mean, you're a good father if you're working overtime, right? Because that's how you pay for your daughter's gymnastics. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at what point do you not listen to your inner voice? Because your inner voice, your mm. conscience should be telling you, George, fuck work. Go see your daughter <laughs> at the gymnastics, yeah. right? You know, because I need to maintain an intimacy with that person. I need to participate in her life, you know, quality time. And so at yeah. one point, so I, I think Neumann gives us a vocabulary to begin looking at, at ourselves, you know, honestly, you know, when the, when does my inner voice become split? I think he calls it, um, 
this what what he calls he calls a splitting something. I wrote it down somewhere. Um, this institution of splitting. This he calls it the splitting process. So mm-hmm. when does the conscious become split from the inner voice? When are they two different strategies? They mm. should not be, but they are. So to be a conscious person, a, a father does overtime to pay the extra mortgage, you know, because he's trying to pay for the yapo and blah, 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 you know. But sending your daughter to gymnastics, this, is that what she really wants or you're concerned with your image as a good father? You know, it, 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 it brings you, it, it helps you become much more critical regarding your own disposition. Mm. You know, am I a good father? I don't know. What is a good father? Someone who works overtime and doesn't go to his daughter's gymnastic meet? I don't know. I don't want to get judgmental. You know, we each have to decide. But doesn't those, doesn't that, doesn't those, um, you know, situations like that in life, all they do is what? They nourish anxiety, don't they? You know, yeah. They, you know, you, you go to bed and you, and you feel with regret. Oh, I'm happy I'm, I'm getting the overtime. But I just miss my daughter's, you know, she just did a, I don't know, a twisting, whatever you call those moves. It's kind of wet, you know, double, double somersault. And yeah. I wasn't there. I only could see a video that my wife, you know, showed me. Um, mm. and, and that can get worse, right? Next, next thing you know, I'm, 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 I'm going on this, this cruise that, that my, my, my job tells me I have to go to. And I'm not helping my, my, my wife take her parents to an assistant living that I should be doing. I should be helping her with, with, you know, with her grieving process, but I'm not. And I'm rationalizing because I'm, uh, you know, I, I have to be this for the next promotion. You know, right. this is, the, this is, this is the dilemma of modern men. You know, we've developed this. This is what we call civilization. You know, this is the results of annoying, again, the implications of the old ethic. You know, we've become too urban. We become what young calls mass men. You know, um, and I think Neumann kind of, he brings Nietzsche in, right? Talking about the ugliest man. Mm. This one, we have to become ugly. <laughs> yeah. But we have to violate the collective values. We need, to, we need to listen to our inner voice. So how do we, how do we cultivate listening to our inner voice? Yeah, well, we, we actually, some of the other podcasts I've done, we've, we've done a, uh, um, We've done Walking by Henry David Thoreau and uh, Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And both of them talk a lot about that, cultivating their inner voice. A lot of their solution is, you know, spending some time in solitude to kind of uh, give yourself a little bit of distance from what the collective is constantly telling you so you can kind of create the space to listen to your inner voice. Um, But one other thing I, I definitely wanted to bring up is, you know, Neumann talks about how the collective's values change over the t- over time by these revolutionaries listening to their inner voice so i think that's important to to see that okay the collective the collective's uh conscience and the collective value is kind of always a little bit behind where you know certain like in his view outstanding individuals are in, in that they're they're listening to their their inner voice and they're hearing, you know, they're hearing the kind of next evolution. And 
then, you know, they're making these radical changes, you know, they're stepping up to the status quo and saying, you know, that's, that's not going to fly anymore because my inner voice is telling me this. But then it's important to, to realize that, you know, as time goes on, the collective kind of then catches up to these individuals and the collective's values change. And then those values become the, uh, the, the conscious or the collective values. It's kind of tragic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's um, kind of tragic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, maybe we can get into talking about projection in scapegoat psychology. I personally found this maybe the most interesting part, um, at least of this first, this first section. Uh, so we were talking earlier about like re- repression and so he says kind of one of the things that happens when we repress our shadow, we repress all these kind of like quote unquote negative aspects of our personality. Um, there's consequences to this. It's not like it just hangs out in the unconscious and chills. Like it, it, uh, starts to take on a life of its own. Yes. And he says, you know, all of this, all of this, when, when we do this, when we repress things, uh, our, our unconscious starts to actually take over. And at least the way I interpret it, he's, he's saying it's kind of runs us. Like we, we don't have control over it. It's almost like we're being led and run by our unconscious. And until we make these things conscious, they're going to rule our lives. And, uh, so, so one of the ways that, uh, it takes over is in the form of projection. So we have all these kind of negative things about ourselves, our shadow, and they're all floating around in our unconscious. What we need to do then, he says, is we need to personify them and we need to map them onto someone else or some, you know, another group of people. So it's like, uh, again, you know, maybe you have this aspect of yourself that is cowardly and you've repressed that. So now I tend to map that onto, uh, I don't know, the, the kid at school that gets picked on or something like that. That's who I then personify my own cowardice onto this other individual and project it onto, to him or her. Um, so yeah, is that, is that more or less how you think about it and read it too? Yeah. I mean, you just explained it quite well. Um, but I, I would also emphasize that remember projection can only happen if there's a shadow. And shadow material happens through um, this, particularly through repression. And again, Neumann um, goes into more later in um, the origins, the history of consciousness. But it starts quite early in life. And I think he kind of, doesn't he assert something in the book also? It starts starts quite early. Uh, I don't know if it's him or it's maybe it's one of the um, Adler or or Young himself, you know, in the forward. Um, Okay. But it's, you know, repression starts quite early. So um, there's a psychic structure known as the shadow um, that starts quite early. And it's not only repressed material, but the shadow material can also be, be stuff that it's, it hasn't, what he calls it, um, not right yet. Not right mm-hmm. yet. He calls it. I love that. That's a, it's a wonderful expression. Um, so it's, it's, it's unripe psychic content. Mm-hmm. Or, um, um, I prefer the term, it's dormant material. It hasn't become, you know, it's not, it's, it's not constellating yet. Um, so it's, it still exists. It, it, it basically exists at, at, at the subliminal level. Yeah. Um, and um, 
Um, and that stuff, if you leave it alone, it festers, right? It gathers its own life. It gathers its own energy. Mm. And if you don't, if you don't encounter it, I think he calls, he says, he says you have to, um, for shadow material, he, he, took, he describes three steps. You need to recognize it. You need to acknowledge it. And then you need to integrate it, right? Mm. Um, if you don't do that, then what's going to happen, it's, it's going to erupt spontaneously. Yeah. You know? And that spontaneous eruption is known as projection. That is projection. So if you find a, um, <laughs> a victim, an object, mm-hmm. you know, that for some reason, um, Jung calls it an image. So if you find an image that for you resonates and, and represents that symbolic of a, a characteristic that you aren't aware of, like what was the one you, you explained? Someone who's uh, I, I I use like the the weakling at school. You. The weakling, okay. Um, so you you don't explain the weak. You know you don't encounter. You don't embrace. You don't recognize. You don't acknowledge. You don't integrate the weakling in you. You're gonna project it onto a um a victim somewhere. Sure. Okay? And it's facilitated if the collective values accept it as well. It's, it, 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 right. it's, um, so it, um, in the, and, uh, I was gonna say the weakling example. Like you could argue that's what a lot of bullies are doing. They're they they're projecting the the weakling in themselves onto this other person and beating it up. They don't they don't like that aspect of themselves. So when they see this other person, they're projecting that onto them and they're trying to destroy it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he states that in, in in the chapter when he talks about the old ethics, he says um, um, one of the um, uh, one of the outcomes, one of the effects of the old ethics is inferiority and guilt. Mm. Guilt, and the way we mitigate that is by finding a scapegoat. Yeah, you know, um, we, we mitigate our guilt, and again, um, it, it, these are specific terms that broadly um, is referred to as neurosis. You know, guilt is no, is neurosis. Mm. Um, inferiority is neurosis. So, how do we mitigate that? Well, we we project it. We say they are. They they this. They're that. You know, it's them. And in and, and in and in um, and in Neumann time, this was the this is what the Germans did with the Jew, right? In you know? not not so subtle ways either. Of just like exactly. they are the enemy. They are animals. Yeah. You know, they like everything. All of the the kind of things that are going bad with the culture, everything that they kind of deem evil gets projected onto this group of people. And yeah, and that's where it gets, it gets really interesting. It gets also just ramped up when it, when we talk about these things at the collective level, because you have the individual who is projecting their shadow onto another individual say, but then you also have the collective, uh, you know, projecting the, their, collective shadow onto the other and you get stuff like scapegoat psychology which is um you know everybody's familiar with the i i guess it was it was it in the jewish tradition where they would actually have a goat who um who they would then you know cast all of the sins onto this goat and then they would sacrifice the goat as a kind of symbolic way of like ridding the collective of their sins essentially yeah. yeah according to neumann he 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 gives an explanation and i think he gives that explanation that there, there are two goats right one um they kill um and then the other one they set free and, and um 
Uh, mm. the, the one they kill deals with, I forget, um, the guilt, I think. And then the one that set free embodies their sense of inferiority somehow. Um, I, I, I have to reread it. He talks about two goats. But basically, that is the, that is the genesis of this idea of scapegoat. It's, it's the goat that escapes. Mm. Scapegoat, you know. But they both, the one, there's two of them, right? One they kill. Um, and you see that much more explicitly, uh, like with the Acts text, right? You know, when, 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 when they killed someone, but the year before, they celebrated, right? They're this mm-hmm. hero. But then they, they, they and, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's populated throughout other, other mythologies as well. These people that become, um, um, uh, you know, they, they, they're treated like, like kings in the tribe. But then at the end of the year, there's their sacrifice, right? Um, you know, it, it makes you think of these movies. What's that movie? Um, where one night of the year you could kill anybody you want? <laughs> oh, the purge. It was in the purge. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. That's what scapegoating is. It's a purging, right? A purging. It's right. a way of of of, of allowing um, your guilt and your sense of inferiority to be expressed, but um, it, it, uh, um, without sacrificing your ego. Well, you know, yeah, you project it onto some sort of of a victim. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's tons of examples. I mean, the obvious ones, you know, the Germans or the, the Nazis, uh, you know, using the Jews as the scapegoat. Um, and sometimes he says, I think it's called mutual shadow projection, where each group yeah, is it. using the other as the, 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 the scapegoat. So this could be like uh, what happened in Rwanda, you know, with the, the two tribes using each other as the scapegoat. Um, or, you know, it, even in like a more subtle way, I think of like uh, college football rivalries where it's like, you know, Ohio State and Michigan, like Ohio State uses Michigan as the, uh, you know, as the devil, essentially, and well, yeah. know, vice versa. So they're kind of both using each other to project their uh, shadow material onto. And what's beautiful about that, that and you know, that's what it gets for me, that's when the religious aspects gets really exciting. You know, if you're aware of these dynamics, if you're aware that you're an, what was it you said, Ohio, Michigan? Yeah. No, if, if you were an Ohio fan, you know, this is what's known as um, fanaticism. And he talks about that in the book too, fanaticism. You know, if you're aware of that, that, it, that this becomes a ritual. Mm. So it's a way for you to express your shadow material. But if you're unconscious of that, and if you're participating in that unintentionally, you know, if it's only a sociological experience for you, it's not a religious experience for you. You're not expressing um, the, the shadow by beating up on Michigan. Mm. Uh, if you're not expressing that intentionally, then you will project it on some other person. Not not other Michigan fans on the Michigan football team. They don't become the scapegoats. They don't become the ritualistic scapegoats. Someone else who you do not intend to do it. So it's somehow mm. it needs to be expressed and needs to be expressed with a degree of, um, of awareness. Um, it needs to be, it, it, it needs to become ritualized, but ultimately happens that these ritual, the, the, these rituals lose their intensities after three, four, five generations. We no longer know the significance behind the ritual. Right. Therefore we have to find a new scapegoat, you know, and while we get that, what he calls the transitional period, through that a transitional period, violence is escalated, you know? And I would argue that's what's happening now. We don't have any more scapegoats. 
you know, we don't have the um, what he calls the red menace or, or, or the yellow. You know, when he talks about uh, Maoist China, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, um, you know, uh, you know what happened in, in Russia after 1917. Um, yeah, we don't have those scapegoats anymore. Americans don't have that. They're looking for other scapegoats now, right? Well, so yeah, yeah. they either get ultra religious, they get ultra fanatical, or they blame the immigrant. <laughs> you know, right? Well, and he said, yeah, because he talks about how, like, uh, I don't know if this was an intro or, or the forward or where, but they're saying kind of like after the Cold War, it was like, you know, we no longer had the Soviet Union to be our scapegoat. So, like, we needed right. to find a new scapegoat. Maybe that's China or Japan, I think they said. Um, but the other issue I think he brings up is that like we're we're not just a member of one group identity you know maybe if we go back far enough into you know when we were hunter gatherers it was just like the tribe and then maybe that other tribe could be the scapegoat and it was very clear or when you know religion was very dominant in europe um you know maybe in like the middle ages it's like yeah you can use your religious identity and then um you know maybe another religious identity would be your scapegoat but he says what happens now is we have all of these different identities. You know, we have our religious identity. We have our national identity. We have our ethnic identity. So within all of those, you know, there are, could be different scapegoats. You know, I could be, a, you know, a white American Christian. So it's like, okay, well, then do I choose to use another country as my scapegoat do i choose to use another race as my scapegoat do i choose to use like another political party as my scapegoat you're right um, you're right um any 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 scaffolding any a, any concretizing of identity aka persona okay um how how, how you are perceived uh, how you want to be perceived or how how you know what's the collective ideal what's the collective perfection um, I'm an American, I'm a meth fan, uh, 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 I'm a dad who pays his bills, whatever those personae may be, the more stronger your personae becomes, the more addicted you become to your personae, the more the disassociation, the distance between persona and shadow. And the mm-hmm. deeper the shadow becomes um, forgotten, as you said earlier on, it becomes much more active at an unconscious level. Subsequently, what's going to happen is that it will be projected. So this old ethic that perpetuates the split between persona and shadow, how does it do that? Well, with repression and suppression, it also does that by developing a good conscience. What's a good conscience? Well, an, a, an American who does this and you know, it has these prescriptive behavior. You know, right. I, I pay my mortgage. I, I have, you know, I, I have two Fords. You know, one Cadillac, whatever. Mm-hmm. No, um, so you, you're developing this persona. So what's happening is the, the psychic structure known as the shadow becomes much more forgotten, therefore much more powerful, according according to the assumptions of depth psychology. Okay, so that becomes much more powerful. So the, the old ethics nourishes the split, this association between right. persona and shadow. So it facilitates the projection. And the projection maintains the the the, the, uh, the old ethic. Mm. 
So, and that's what we have. I think nowadays we have projections everywhere. You know, the academics, the scientists, the, um, you know, I mean, all you got to do is put on the news today. And, any, you know, the Republicans, the Democrats, everybody is is, is projecting their guilt and sense of superiority onto, onto the, the other. Lower, onto the, to, to the other. And so when, no matter what their names are. Well, and that's a really good kind of liberal, the progressives, the conservatives. We make up these categories, right? And that's a good kind of litmus test to see where you're probably projecting is to see you know who do I have a strong emotional reaction to negatively. Right. If it's yeah. just like Trump is the devil, okay, well then there's probably aspects of you that you see in him or you know are projecting onto him. You know, and same with, uh, you know, the the Republicans and the Democrats, like it's a lot of. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of projection there, and you can tell by the, you know, the amount of fanaticism you mentioned earlier. It's. uh, Yeah, I think fanaticism is is usually a good way to to spot a projection. And, you know, the fanaticism can can be manifested in negative and positive you know it can be uh you know celebrity yeah it's it's positive i think and again positive as in like this person or this group is amazing and you know like this celebrity is my god essentially i I don't mean positive as in like uh it's a good for you to do it but um positive in that you're you're projecting positive elements onto that person or identity yeah, yeah, uh, but still a projection, you know. Um, yeah. uh, this person is generous. Okay, yeah, I, I, I celebrate that person because they're generous, but I'm still not being generous. I'm still not owning my generosity. And mm. That's problematic. Um, if I don't own it, then I, I still maintain a, a disassociation between persona and shadow. Ultimately, the, the new ethic wants you to integrate. You know, it, 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 the imperative is to integrate, um, particularly shadow material. How do you integrate shadow material? You know, well, it's easy. The young says, make it much more conscious. You know, uh, make conscious the unconscious. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's his prescription, if there is one. He doesn't, he seldom gives prescriptions, but if he does, that's one. Uh, make conscious the unconscious. Um, but how do you do that? You know, um, becomes the question, and I think you kind of gave a um, a, a clue uh, that which you recognize is has some sort of an emotional reaction, yeah, an emotional response. So yeah, um, and most projections, Young was what he calls them technically complexes. Um, they're emotionally. Um, What's the word? They're 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 embedded with emotions, mm-hmm. our emotions, um, and that's and, and that's that's something that can contribute to to awareness and ultimately discernment. To you know to know when you're being emotional, so you can begin to withdraw projections, because um, it's through projections that I get. Uh, it's challenging for me. Does projection lead to scapegoating or the scapegoating lead projection? I think. It's, Projections lead to scapegoating, but they're inexplicable yeah. ultimately, right? Right. Um, yeah, they're pretty close. Yeah. But we, you know, it's, it's, and, and you know, he calls them. Um, what does what does Neumann call them? 
um, scapegoats become what we call aliens. They, they become mm. the minorities, right? They're the minorities and the aliens. Well, th- yeah, I, I think it's important to talk about. So, like, who the popular scapegoats tend to be. He kind of gave three different categories, and the the thing that's similar amongst all three of them is that they are alien. They are they are the other. You know, the they other. are. So one of them is uh, our our minorities. One of them are the, I think what he calls ethically inferior. And the final category is those who are superior. So I found that really interesting. And, and you know, he's talking kind of at the collective level, the, the, the tend to the people who we tend to scapegoat, you know, we have the minorities. That one's pretty straightforward. You know, it could be the Jews or the African-Americans in, in, in America and, you know, earlier, um, earlier times so and then the ethically inferior these would be i think he gives like psychopaths as being one or or you know i guess anybody who uh acts unethically yeah i I think of i think of somebody like harvey weinstein who you know obviously did some things that were (laughs) ethically inferior but like, what did we do to him as a collective? Like, we we basically personified him as the devil, and you know, yeah, collect- he collectively, he embodies the anti-value. He embodies the yeah. He now embodies. He is now the scapegoat that we push all, um, you know, ethically questionable things onto, and we sacrifice him. And then the third category. Oh, the third category. I thought this was really interesting. He says the superior. So he's talking about like geniuses and people of superior abilities. And this is, I I think this is really fascinating. And this is when you get into like why we tend to crucify, crucify celebrities. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's a thing, right? Like we, we, we love the, we love the kind of like, the cult of personality. Yeah, the we love to kind of see the downfall of the 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 celebrity or the person at the top. You know, whether it's like Britney Spears just having a breakdown. Like, there's there's some kind of sadistic glee yeah. that the collective gets out of. Well, it becomes a ritual, and we recognize. Yeah. I mean, right nowadays, I mean, what comes to mind very quickly is what's happening to um, Andrew Cuomo. Hmm. You know, um, you know, we, we he he embodied all these um all, all these um these um superior attributes, right? Yeah. Uh, but then now somehow um you know he's he's fallen from grace. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not I, I, I'm not getting judgmental regarding the particulars. I'm addressing the phenomenon, the psychic phenomenon. There's a tendency to um you know we make heroes, right? And and he, he says that earlier on regarding the old ethics. That the, the symbol, and that's what I find that I need to chew on, and I, and I I don't think it it ever it ever hit me, um, till um, till I reread it. But he talks about that the one of the symbols of the old ethic is the saint, yeah, and the hero. And I had I had to I had to think about that, I had to chew on that piece, and I'm still chewing on it. But I find that it's true, right? It's 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 you know, um. Uh, they're the, they're kind of the embody of perfection my, or the yeah, embody. My father, my father's hero to me. Mm. 
but it's very difficult to accept he was an anti-girl too. Maybe he had his flaws. You know, I need to accept that. Um, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart is a hero for me. You know, Carl Young is a hero for me. You know, um, yeah. how, you know, when will I knock these people down? Willie Mays is a hero for me. You know, um, um, Angela Davis is a hero for me. You know, you know, when will I knock her down? Well, we'll find out, right? I guess, right. but it serves my persona. You know, sure, yeah. Well, that's according, according to the assumption. There's a there's a funny line. It's something like "never meet your heroes," uh, <laughs> because you know it's it's you might maybe your hero is um, I don't know like Billy Joel, and you find oh Billy Joel, you're so amazing. And you like see him in the flesh, and he's just like a real fucking asshole, and you know maybe he's smoking, and he's just like really looks disheveled, and you're like oh. You know, it because that reality sets in like, oh, this is actually a complex human being. It's not just, um, you know, this God image that I have in my head, like I'm seeing the whole thing. So I, I don't I think it's that probably applies to to anybody, you know, that if you actually met Angela Davis, um, you know, you would probably you'd probably get a more accurate picture of the totality of her, not just maybe the. um the positive aspects of her you know we celebrate people like you know a rebel without a cause right we, we celebrate the, the, these figures you know these well i think he calls them um i think he calls them well if not i i will he calls them black sheeps right these black mm. sheep celebrate these personalities and these black sheeps um but again they become the scapegoats the ones we let go you know not the mm. one we kill but the one that we let go um and ritualistically, they serve our psychic needs, don't they? You know, um, but yeah. yet they perpetuate what he calls the old ethic, which is not working, according to him. Right. Working. Well, yeah, and maybe it's a good place to to kind of leave off in anticipation of the next, because we'll get into, uh, you know, in the next one, we'll get into. Neumann's thoughts on what the new ethic should be and how we should deal with some of these issues that the old ethic creates and has created. Sounds um, good. Cool, man. Well, this was this was a great part one. We uh, we had some trouble, uh, some technical issues getting started, but <laughs> once we did it, it, it was a blast, man. I was getting depressed, man. When um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't think it was going to happen. So I, we were stressing it, it, out. We were using Skype as our scapegoat. All, there you go, there all you the go. negative technology uh, experiences I've had in the, the last year were just pushed onto Skype, and I just wanted to sacrifice it. And, I feel uh, like I needed to find a scapegoat, and I couldn't find one. <laughs> Skype. Find for this. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write us a review or give us a rating. All that helps out a ton, so thanks so much in advance. If you'd like to read along with us, please visit unpackingideas.com, where I post links to the articles and essays that we'll be reading and discussing on future podcast episodes. And finally, if you are in the New York City area, be sure to check out George's meetup. He has a meetup on Carl Jung's ideas in depth psychology 
and I believe it is just called Carl Jung Meetup or Depth Psychology Meetup. Really, if you type any of those things into meetup.com search engine, if you're in the New York City area, you'll see George. All right, cool. Looking forward to part two. We'll see you guys next episode.